Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Systemic Sclerosis Interstitial Lung Disease, a multidisciplinary approach to diagnosis, treatment, and longitudinal management, is provided in partnership with National Jewish Health and is supported by an independent educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome. My name is Jeff Swigris, and I am a professor and pulmonologist in the Interstitial Lung Disease Program at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. Our educational activity, Systemic Sclerosis Interstitial Lung Disease, a multidisciplinary approach to diagnosis, treatment, and longitudinal management, is supported by an independent educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated and is provided through a collaboration between National Jewish Health, the nation's leading respiratory hospital based in Denver, Colorado, and its partners, Mount Sinai in New York City and Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. These top institutions have formed the Mount Sinai National Jewish Health Respiratory Institute in New York City and the Jane and Leonard Corman Respiratory Institute, Jefferson Health, National Jewish Health in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. These three organizations bring together leading expertise in diagnosing and treating all forms of respiratory illness and lung disease, including asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, interstitial lung disease, and bronchiectasis. This collaboration encompasses advanced research, clinical trials, and other programs to serve patients throughout the country in an unparalleled respiratory network. For our discussion today, I am joined by my colleagues, Dr. Maria Padilla, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Advanced Lung Disease and Interstitial Lung Disease Programs at the Mount Sinai National Jewish Health Respiratory Institute. Dr. Jesse Roman, Professor of Medicine and the Chief Executive Officer of the Jane and Leonard Corman Respiratory Institute, and Enterprise Division Chief of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care Medicine at Jefferson Health, and Dr. Mernaz Malecki, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Rheumatology Clinic at National Jewish Health. Please join us as we discuss best practices for the diagnosis of scleroderma-related ILD and present multidisciplinary perspectives related to the treatment and longitudinal management of this rare disease. Summer of 2013, uh, as I was, uh, I was in Croatia and we were just traveling the summer, having a good time, and I noticed that uh, my skin was changing. Uh, I started getting these uh, brown pigments uh, all over my chest and my back. Um, and one of my friends actually told me that, hey, you probably want to check that and I got really, I, I wasn't that concerned at that point. I was in pretty good shape. I was a pretty active snowboarder. Um, I used to run two miles every day. So as I got back to the States, uh, I started getting other sy symptoms. My, my hands were swollen every morning. They'll hurt. My feet were swollen. I was having problems breathing. Um, I was having problems going just one flight of stairs. I was developing these, uh, uh, really intense cough and my work uh, 
was getting to be a little bit difficult just to my day-to-day activities. So um, at that point was when I started realizing that I had something wrong. I finished my chemotherapy um, um, treatment in at the end of 2015. And uh, from that point on till now, my uh, scleroderma has been on the remission. Uh, and a lot of the symptoms that were making me feel bad uh, have been non-existent. Uh, obviously, there are some that you got to cope with arthritis, um, but the tightness in my skin that was really uh, really bad, you know, you feel constrained in your own skin. Um, the, the, the painful uh, numbness in your fingers, um, you know, those are pretty much non-existent for me. My actual pulmonary functions um, capacity has been actually increased a little bit, not very much, which is, you know, you don't get that. And at that point, I, I was feeling so uh, inspired to continue to do what I needed to do. I started snowboarding again, um, not as I used to, <laughs> but, you know, everything with uh, my limitations, but I can actually do it. Everybody has a battle to fight at one point in your life. Um, I was just starting at 36. Um, but that, that wasn't going to stop, you know, me from continuing to live and I could actually live a, a normal life uh, with my family and my kids. So that that's probably don't stop your life. There is treatment. Thank you for your attention for that. That's why we're here, right? We take care of patients like David. To start things off, Dr. Malecki Fishback will be up here to talk about epidemiology and how to make the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. Renaz? Good morning, everyone. So let's talk about epidemiology. As you can see, the prevalence of this condition it has a quite wide range for incidence and prevalence. And what do you think this can be? I think it's because we have underdiagnosed patients in many areas of the world. If you are not familiar with something, you cannot recognize it. And perhaps that was the purpose of this conference. Systemic sclerosis has higher rates in United States and Australia compared to Japan and Europe. Uh, African-Americans are more affected compared to Caucasians. Um, they also have more severe disease, more interstitial lung disease. Females more affected than males around three to four folds. And in general, in the U.S., we have 100,000 of people affected by systemic sclerosis. So another question, ILD may develop in any patient with systemic sclerosis. All of the following are clinical features and factors that increase risk for scleroderma ILD, except, great. So let's talk about different phenotype of this condition. 
So we have something called scleroderma, scleroderma. We have that term in rheumatology quite often, like myositis, cinemyositis. So these are the patients, they do not have cutaneous manifestation, but they have the rest of the manifestation, like GI dysmotility, Raynaud's phenomenon, ILD, pulmonary hypertension. Um, limited cutaneous systemic scleroderma, formerly known as CREST syndrome, which is the abbreviation of calcinosis, Raynaud's phenomenon, scleroderma, telangiectasia. Normally, the involvement or distal to elbow and knee. Diffuse cutaneous systemic scleroderma, we use Rodnan um, skin score system to assess the extent of the skin involvement. And scleroderma overlap syndrome that is overlapped with different conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, myositis, Sjogren, and systemic lupus erythematosus. So we rheumatologists really like our serology, and we use it for diagnosis as well as anticipating um, the disease manifestation. For example, nucleolar ANA, anti-syntromer antibody, and anti-THTO, they are more involved with limited disease and PAH. Although it doesn't mean they don't get ILD, Anti-THTO also can give you ILD, but we have, they have more limited disease and we always have to look for PAH. Um, SCL70, anti-topoisomerase 1, topoisomerase 3, RMP1, 2, 3, they cause, uh, cause diffuse disease and more ILD. Again, it doesn't mean they don't have pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, RMP3 has m severe ILD. And overlap, we use um, myositis panels like PMSCL, anti-CU, that is overlapped with myositis, SSA, which is overlapped with Sjogren, antiphospholipid, anti-SM, overlapped with lupus, and um, it's not there, but anti-CCP, overlapped with rheumatoid arthritis. We use ACR ULAR criteria of 2013, which got improved quite a bit from the previous criteria. It has three hallmarks of fibrosis of skin and organs, autoantibodies we already talked about, and vasculopathy like Raynaud's phenomenon and um, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Good sensitivity and specificity, a total score of nine um, or more is classified as definite systemic sclerosis. These are the common symptoms, fatigue, stiff joints, loss of strength, pain, sleep difficulties, and skin discoloration. Let's talk about the skin. Maybe this is the best one for pulmonologists because they give us lots of information, um, different manifestation of the skin. So we saw my patient, David. So she, he came to us with pruritus and edema, and um, that was his first manifestation. But by the time he got to us, he had scleroderma. The easy way to look for scleroderma, just look at distal, DIP, and if they lost the wrinkles, that's the very mild scleroderma. And then sclerosis, digital tip ulcer, loss of hair in acral area, and dry skin. I have some pictures. So this is pitting of the tip of the fingers. We always look at tip of the fingers. If you don't treat it, they can get ulceration. Calcinosis cutis, this is calcium deposit. We sometimes use x-ray of the hands, very simple tests to prove that. Lipoatrophy, my patient David had that in his back and actually responded to cell tab and it's completely normal. Telangiectasia, that's maybe the best one. The patient enters your room and they have red spot on their face and on their tongue, lips and palms. 
And this is salt and pepper appearance because of hypopigmentation and depigmentation. So that edema was pre-escoderma manifestation. Another pre-escoderma manifestation is Raynaud's phenomenon. Before they have anything else, years before they may have Raynaud's. How we know the Raynaud's is important? So if somebody is in 20 and 30s, they have Raynaud's with cold and anxiety and nothing else, that's primary Raynaud's phenomenon. But if the 40, 50-year-old suddenly comes with severe Raynaud's and whitening instead of blue and purple, that's a more sign that this can be something of connective tissue disorder. Then we have capillaroscopy. We have fancy machines like you know, a microscope, but they also have a small, cheap one you can buy from Amazon. So they have <laughs> decreased capillary numbers, capillary dilatation, capillary dropout, and hemorrhage. They have also increased um, thromboembolic disease. GI dysmotility, another good one. If the patient has difficulty swallowing, and by, me by meaning GI, it's not just esophagus. They even have issues with their stomach and their colon. They have problem moving their bowels. Of course, reflux, chronic esophagitis, stricture formation, uh, Barrett esophagitis, and pulmonary microaspiration, another good one, because this is something perhaps we can prevent that can make their lung manifestation worse. Um, this is GAVE. So if your gastroenterologist colleague sees a watermelon in patient's stomach, that means they are more prone to having acute GI bleeding. This is a sign, a risk factor for GI bleeding. Cardiac involvement. So my esteemed colleague, Dr. Padilla, is going to elaborate on that more. Um, but we have WSU group 1, PAH. In PAH group, we also have PVOD and PCH. Why is it important to think about that? Another issue of if we don't know something, if you are not familiar with something, we cannot think of it. PVOD and PCH is important because if you treat them with vasodilator like garden variety PAH, they can develop pulmonary edema or even cause them to, to die. Um, we also have group three that is uh, hypoxia driven and group four that is related to thromboembolic disease. Another good thing about cardiac manifestation and pulmonologists. Imagine you look at a CT scan of the chest and you see precarditis or precardial effusion. This always raises the possibility of CTD, connective tissue disorder, and especially scleroderma. When they did autopsies on this patient, up to 80% of them had precardial disease. So scleroderma is a, is a cardiac disease. They also have patchy myocardial fibrosis. This is a pathological hallmark of the disease, and that can cause problem with arrhythmia, conduction defect, uh, coronary vasospasm. Also, it's like, imagine Raynaud's for coronary arteries and systolic and diastolic dysfunction. Joint, maybe for pulmonologists, if you do something we call prayer sign, they cannot get their hands together. That means that they have contractures. Um, very interesting feature is acroosteolysis, the resorption of the distal phalanx of the hands. Again, it, hand x-ray tells us a lot of things. Tendon friction rub, if they have it, um, is with high mortality, so even joints can help us to predict the outcome. 
and frank inflammatory arthritis is rare, but they have subclinical arthritis. They have the morning stiffness and other issues related to inflammatory arthritis. Everybody knows scleroderma renal crisis. Again, it can cause pulmonary edema. It's microangiopathic hemolytic anemia with schistocytes. Glomerulonephritis, very rare, sometimes associated with anchor, elevated albumin, elevated creatinine, and hypertension. Neuropathy, you heard from my patient that they, he had numbness and tingling. Their skin gets tightened and pressed on the nerves, so kind of like carpal tunnel, and it can happen any part of the body. Myopathy, myopathy, imagine the skin is so tight and pressed on the muscles, so the CK go up, it doesn't have to be inflammatory myositis. Headache, seizure, stroke, radiculopathy, and this is myelopathy again. When you have fibrosis, you have extra collagen, this thing can happen. Loss of genitourinary issues, erectile dysfunction, vaginal dryness, constriction, and dyspareunia. Lung cancer. So Shaw and colleagues in uh, 2010, they did a, a study and they realized that the longer the patient has um, the scleroderma, the higher the chance of lung cancer. And RNA polymerase one and three is higher chance for developing um, a lung cancer, has higher chance. This is RN RNP one and three, so um, which um, we see in um, diffuse scleroderma with um, ILD. Hematologic cancer, myeloproliferative, esophageal cancer, obviously, because of Barrett esophagitis and oropharyngeal carcinoma. And I'm not going to talk about the lungs. There are better people here. Thank you. Thank you, Mirnaz. And now Dr. Roman's going to talk to us about therapeutic treatment options for scleroderma ILD. Jesse. Thank you, sir. Good morning, everyone. Now that you are fully awake, and you are experts in the epidemiology and manifestations of the disease, let's talk a little bit about the treatment. One of the things you realize is that I only have a few minutes to tell you about how to treat scleroderma-related ILD or systemic sclerosis ILD. And unfortunately, that time will be more than enough. And the reason is because we don't really have a tremendous tool set for the treatment of this condition. But I will finish with a few promising agents that might be very helpful in the near future. So first a question, your patient presents with new onset crest syndrome manifesting as scleroderma distal to the elbow, scleroactyly, telangiectasia, esophageal dysmotility, and antisetomere antibodies. Their risk for progressive ILD is high or low or no risk, okay? And the answer to that is really on this slide that says antibody status rather than the extent of scleroderma, is most informative relative to the risk for ILD. So if you have patients with nuclear ANA or anti-TO antibodies or SLC70, they have a higher risk of progression of ILD as opposed to the bottom, where you have the antipolymerase or anti-centromere antibodies, which may have <clears throat> problems related to other organs, but less with ILD. Not that you cannot have it. But in essence, the extent of their skin disease, for example, may not be sufficient for you to judge where they're heading with interstitial disease. Now, we want to study pulmonary fibrosis, and we want to treat it because we recognize that it portends a worse outcome. So if you look on the left of your slide, the lower your FEC, 
the more extensive fibrosis on your CT scan, the worse your outcome, as you see on the bottom slide. And so people have been looking for targets for intervention. And in the area of scleroderma, we understand that there's inflammation, that there could be tissue injury, there's vascular damage to endothelium, there's immunity with activation of B and T cells, macrophages, and ultimately affecting the fibroblasts and promoting fibrosis. <clears throat> so as you can imagine, there are a lot of chemokines and cytokines and other cells and cells that are uh, potential targets for intervention, but people have focused on the inflammatory immunity component of this process. And so here are some of the drug therapies that can be used. Cyclophosphamide, mycophenolate mofetil or Celsep, nintenidib, low-dose prednisone, and of course others have used azathioprine and rituximab as reasonable alternatives to the above. One of the points I want to highlight today, it is not just about treating the interstitial lung disease, that there is much we can do with these patients. First of all, by having the correct diagnosis and avoiding procedures that are not important. Number two, are they hypoxemic or not? That will enhance survival for progressive fibrosing lung disorders. Do they need a prescripted exercise program? Do they need to be part of a pulmonary rehabilitation program? Have they had their immunizations? Do they have an appropriate diet? Have we evaluated them for the appropriate comorbidities? Do they have sleep disorder breathing? Can they uh, engage in behavioral changes to avoid uh, reflux and microaspirations? All of those are equally important as the drugs that we start these patients on for their chronic lung disease. Now, many of you are familiar with the scleroderma study. It was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that treated patients with oral cyclophosphamide versus placebo. These patients had moderate uh, restrictive lung disease, a DLCO that was over 30%. They have some inflammation by BAL, and they were given cyclophosphamide at 2 milligrams per kilo per day versus placebo for one year and followed for a second year only 13 centers involved. And what you can see here is a comparison between the placebo on the blue line and cyclophosphamide. <clears throat> and there's some modest improvement on the adjusted FVC percent. Now notice that the y-axis does not start at zero. So it's really like four to three, maybe 5%, which is statistically significant, but not always necessarily clinically significant. But this was sufficient for us to continue or start using cyclophosphamide more often in the care for these patients. But clearly with this slide, you realize much more needs to be done. Now these days, people like to use mycophenolate. And this comes from another study, also a double-blind randomized trial, where they use oral cyclophosphamide versus Celsep. So these patients were already on baseline therapy um, and then were treated with cyclophosphamide or mycophenolate. And half and half almost were, st were uh, strategized or randomized to these therapy. And there was no difference. And what this data suggested, again, very similar change in FEC, but what this data suggested is that one or the other could have a similar effect. And since mycophenolate is a little better tolerated for these patients and has less consequences as long as you follow them appropriately, many people have moved on to use mycophenolate for the management of these patients. <clears throat> now, of course, we talked about immunity, and you can't go without talking about the potential effect of autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, which has been tested, and it seems to increase the mortality of these patients early on, but it may confer long-term benefit. It is modest. 
And of course, in these patients who don't do well, who continue to progress despite your best management, they should be considered for lung transplantation. And today we know that the outcomes of those patients is no different than the outcomes of patients with other fibrosis and lung disorders after the procedure. But more recently, people have been interested in the fibroblasts. Just like we've learned in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that is more of a non-inflammatory process and more of a fibrogenic process, this idea of activation of fibroblasts, trans-biofibroblasts, um, trans-differentiation, and excessive production of connective tissue matrices like collagen, people have targeted this. And one of the drugs that has been targeted is Nintenative. Now, I don't think you can see this, but this, you remember this, the Senensis trial published in New England Journal of Medicine just earlier this year, where they looked at over 800 patients, 500 plus were randomized uh, to Nintenative versus placebo. Many of these patients were already on <clears throat> a therapy. In fact, 48% were on CELSIP already. But they added on top of their therapy Nintenative as an antifibrotic agent. And what they found was very similar to the data that you might remember related to uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis when the tentative was approved back in 2014 and 2015. And in the upper left panel up there, what you see is a bigger drop in adjusted FEC in the placebo group versus the experimental group. And of course, the common decrease in FEC as you see over time in a period of 52 weeks, but a slower decline with the tentative. So the tentative, again, does not improve the condition, does not make you feel better, does not reverse or cure the fibrosis. It slows down the decline, but much better than what we've seen without it, and that's important. Now, one other important thing, as you remember from looking at this paper, is that many people are concerned about the adverse effects of an intentative, and many of these adverse effects are usually gastrointestinal. But as you can see on this list, they were very similar on both groups. So I would not withhold this drug, considering they may have worse side effects than not using it at all. That is not the case, at least by this trial. I'm going to leave you with this slide, because I think <clears throat> this is a promising slide about what's going to happen in the future. I've talked to you about the potential targets for intervention. Immune cells like macrophages and lymphocytes, the epithelium, we think about the epithelium as being chronically injured, causing dysfunction and increased production of prefibrotic uh, agents like transforming growth factor beta that ultimately affects the fibroblast. You have fibroblast transdifferentiation, excessive production of extracellular matrices, contraction of scar tissue. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse, for that wonderful overview. And now Dr. Padilla is going to talk to us about strategies for the longitudinal management of these patients. Thank you, Jeff. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's truly a pleasure to be here and discussing this very challenging uh, problem. And we are grateful uh, to uh, uh, Jeff, to uh, Mernas, and to Jesse for outlining the challenges that we face in taking care of a patient with scleroderma. This multi-organ disease indeed requires a village for us to, uh, to treat these patients. Uh, the specialists that you have uh, heard listed there are all impacting in the care of our patients. And the longitudinal uh, care of these uh, patients require that we look at things that are going to uh, improve the survival that we have heard and also to improve the quality of life of our patients, such as David, uh, for the future. So 
We see here that the cause of death in systemic sclerosis has changed over the last decades. Most of it is because we have found some treatments for diseases such as the uh, renal involvement that no longer poses the threat that it did in the beginning of, uh, of the study that you see conducted here. However, if you look at this, the lung involvement in uh, systemic sclerosis is the cause of death in over 60% of our patients uh, that will die. And mostly this represents this uh, interstitial lung disease that we've been talking about, and uh, mostly pulmonary fibrosis, but also pulmonary arterial hypertension. So if we are looking at these two comorbidities, these are where we need to concentrate and try to um, make advances or at least screen our patients early enough so that we can uh, implement some of the new therapies that are coming and in the future participate in clinical trials to improve this. Here we see the impact of these uh, comorbidities or these uh, manifestations in the survival in patients with uh, scleroderma. If a patient has no pulmonary manifestations and the predominant manifestation of their disease are the other organs, you see that they have a 10-year uh, survival of about 84%. This drops significantly if you have interstitial lung disease, where that survival is about 58%. However, if they have pulmonary arterial hypertension, something that potentially treatable is in this state, uh, that is dramatically down to about 27% survival at the same age. So if we think of a patient who's, 10, uh, who's 36, and this does not look like a good prospect if it develops any of these manifestations. About 20% of our patients with um, scleroderma will have a combined pulmonary fibrosis and uh, pulmonary uh, hypertension. And we have heard about the risk factors for ILD and systemic sclerosis. It's worth repeating and for us to keep these um, risk factors in mind so that we can screen our patients appropriately. And, uh, all patients should be screened in a systematic way so that we can potentially uh, intervene early in the manifestations. How do we start the screening process in our patients? How do we follow them longitudinal? As pulmonologists, we depend on the pulmonary function studies to give us an uh, to give us an insight into their disease. We know that the rate of loss of uh, vital capacity is greatest in those first five years, so uh, two to four years, after we have made that diagnosis. The uh, rate of loss continues over a period of time, but it's not as dramatic in the first one. So it becomes very important to manage, to, um, uh, investigate these patients at very short intervals in the initial period of their um, disease. We also know from pulmonary function studies that they are associated with uh, decreased survival. So if you drop your forced vital capacity 
by greater than 10% over one year, or you drop your diffusing capacity by greater than 15% uh, at 24 months from your diagnosis. This marks our patients as to uh, having a decreased uh, survival. Pulmonary function also help us to become more aware of the potential um, uh, other complications that we see. So that if we look at the ratio between the force vital capacity and the diffusing capacity, particularly in those patients who don't have a lot of fibrotic disease, it may trigger you to start thinking of pulmonary hypertension and to investigate this uh, patient uh, in this fashion. Another tool that we have for evaluating patients for these, uh, in these uh, manifestations is the high-resolution CT scan. Every patient with, interest, with uh, scleroderma should have an, um, a CT scan because you can't depend on the vital capacity to be the guide as to when you have uh, interstitial lung disease or not. So in, when we look at the CT scan, we look at the degree of involvement because that too is reflected in their uh, PFT. So we can go from minimal involvement to very extensive involvement where uh, more than uh, 30, 40% of our um, uh, parenchyma is involved with uh, the interstitial process. And so if we combined the uh, PFTs and the CT scan, we can strat stratify our patient into very uh, extensive disease or um, limited disease. And we do that by looking at the extent of the CT scan uh, involvement, and if it's greater than 20% uh, and your force vital capacity is less than 70%, by definition you have extensive disease. And if it's less than that, then you have limited disease. And the importance of this is that this classification uh, based on CT scan and force vital capacity has been shown, has been demonstrated to have an impact on survival. So if you do have extensive disease, you see here that the, the curves uh, dramatically separate. This is a tool that we all have available. We have our PFDs and we have our CT scan because all these patients are presenting in this way. So here we have another comorbidity that dramatically impacts our patients with uh, systemic sclerosis, and we should be looking for this uh, on every patient, and that is the manifestation of pulmonary hypertension. And you can see here that there are many uh, factors or underlying pathogenic mechanism by which patients with scleroderma develop pulmonary hypertension. We certainly heard that there is a vasculopathy. There is an inflammation of these vessels that then leads to the development of systemic sclerosis. We see also that fibrosis can lead to the development of pulmonary hypertension, and the longer the fibrosis is there, the greater the risk of this patient eventually developing pulmonary hypertension. We heard also that this is a procoagulant disease and that there is in situ thrombosis in a number of patients. And the under-recognized 
pulmonary venoocclusive disease is also a factor in the development of pulmonary hypertension. You can see it here nicely outlined or suspected by the presence of thickening of these septal um, findings that you have uh, there, and also by the, by the presence of what looks like curly B lines, the typical findings of uh, uh, pulmonary venoocclusive disease. So if you have this type of CT scan, please think about this possibility because the management of that patient with pulmonary hypertension may be different than the, uh, the usual one. These factors, including the presence of myocardial disease that can also lead to the development of uh, a pulmonary hypertension in our patients, then are perhaps the reasons why it is difficult to uh, treat pulmonary hypertension in the scleroderma, and that the outcomes in this treatment is not as robust as they are in the patients who have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. But it may also be because we detect pulmonary hypertension in our patients with scleroderma at a more advanced stage. Usually they're in class three or four when we make a diagnosis, and obviously at that time, the potential interventions are not, go, uh, are not there. So how do we then follow these patients or suspect it? Certainly we have some uh, factors that we uh, know are in, uh, associated with an uh, increased risk of developing uh, pulmonary hypertension, and they are outlined here, so that if you have a patient uh, with that, then you, by all means, please send them for that echocardiogram. If you find some uh, findings on your echocardiogram uh, that make you suspect that indeed the patient has pulmonary hypertension, uh, please proceed to your right heart cath. You should always do a right heart cath before instituting therapy on these patients because of the many factors that are important in uh, making uh, the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension and uh, assessing the degree of pulmonary hypertension and then intervening with the proper medication. <clears throat> I think that the right heart cath also helps you finding those other uh, causes of pulmonary hypertension that uh, come directly from the heart, from the dysfunction of the left ventricle. In those patients, you are going to treat differently than you treat those that have the pulmonary uh, hypertension alone. So, and it's important that at the time of right heart cath, we do some challenges and that we do hemodynamic monitor in these patients. So how in general do we, what is the longitudinal um, assessment of these patients? So for sure, a baseline evaluation should include the echocardiogram, the PFTs as we have discussed before, and also the CT scan for these patients. And it's important that longitudinally, we follow these patients early on and at the onset of their disease with frequent uh, PFTs every three to four months for the first three years or so, and then that we can spare, uh, we can uh, space it out. And again, our CT scan, because it also helps us with detecting some of the comorbidities, such as lung cancer, that these patients should have, then we follow them uh, approximately every uh, 12 months or so. And uh, 
the uh, six-minute walk we used to guide some uh, need for oxygen in, in these patients. So all of these things are done routinely, uh, and we see here that some of the important things in the longitudinal assessment of our patients are uh, recapped here. And remember the phenotype that we're looking for in those patients who develop ILD. Remember that the fibrosis does matter and that ILD and pulmonary arterial hypertension are truly a um, dismal comorbidity to manifestation of this disease. So the message is please screen and detect early and intervene because I think that as outlined before, the future of this disease may be improving and these comorbidities can go the way of the renal one where we are going to be uh, seeing them lower. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Maria. Um, now we're going to have a discussion up here, just sort of an out loud uh, back and forth. To frame our discussion, let's talk about a case. So consider a 70-year-old gentleman, former smoker, who presents with three years of exertional dyspnea and dry cough. He's noted bluing, what he describes as bluing of his fingers. That began two years ago and has been intermittent ever since. Not terribly bothersome, just something that he noticed. His past medical history is significant for coronary artery disease, gastroesophageal reflux, and hyperlipidemia. He's a former 20-pack year smoker. He quit 10 years ago. He served in Vietnam and was exposed to Agent Orange. His family history is non-contributory. Uh, there is a history of celiac disease in a sister. His primary care provider ordered a chest radiograph to evaluate his dyspnea. Chest radiograph was found to be abnormal, and he was referred to a pulmonologist. That pulmonologist performed pulmonary function studies and ordered a high-resolution CT scan. Pulmonary function studies revealed a forced vital capacity 68% of the predicted value, and a DLCO also 68% of the predicted value. The high-resolution CT scan showed clear evidence of a fibrosing interstitial pneumonia manifesting as a lower zone predominant reticular abnormality with some ground glass opacities as well, no definitive honeycombing. Cardiac evaluation, reasonable in a 70-year-old who presents with exertional dyspnea, was negative. Because of the abnormal CT scan, he was referred for surgical lung biopsy. Here are slices of the CT scan, which show here in the lower zones, peribronchovascular ground glass opacities with a fine reticular pattern. Traction bronchiectasis is fairly prominent as we go down through the bases. Of note on this slice, which shows his heart anteriorly and spine posteriorly. We see an air fluid level in the esophagus, which is a small clue to the possibility of esophageal dysmotility. And as we see at the extreme bases, again, fine reticular pattern, ground glass, traction bronchiectasis, subpleural sparing, so a fine rim of 
normal appearing lung parenchyma between the visceral pleura and the opacities, and no definitive honeycombing. The surgical biopsy indeed showed a fibrosing interstitial pneumonia that the pathologist read as a pattern of usual interstitial pneumonia with fibroblastic foci and all the usual features, including microscopic honeycombing, but there were so-called NSIP-like areas scattered throughout, and that always raises uh, a question about how to approach a, a patient with these pathological abnormalities. Because UIP was present, he was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the pulmonologist at the outside believed there was no systemic autoimmune disease or significant exposure to account for the pulmonary fibrosis. So indeed, the diagnosis of IPF was made, and he was started on an antifibrotic profenadone. The patient then was referred to an interstitial lung disease center where he was able to be evaluated in a multidisciplinary fashion by rheumatology and pulmonology. So the rheumatologist elicited a bit more history. This bluing of the fingers was actually slam dunk consistent for Raynaud's phenomenon. The rheumatologist also identified some subtle exam findings, including an abnormal nail fold capillaroscopy and some subtle puffy fingers. When we think about the diagnostic criteria for systemic sclerosis, those three things gave him eight points. And remember, a nine-point total uh, gives us a diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. So eight points there. He has interstitial lung disease, which is another two points. And then serological evaluation was performed, which had not been done at the outside. He had an elevated anti-RNA polymerase three, an elevated ANA in a nucleolar pattern, and a negative anti-centromere antibody. And the rheumatologist and interstitial lung disease physician uh, conferred together and came up with a clinical summary diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. So we're dealing with scleroderma-related interstitial lung disease. This slide shows pulmonary physiology over time. So before the surgical lung biopsy, recall FVC and DLCO were each 68% of the predicted value. After profenadone was put on, he actually continued to lose lung function with his FVC sliding down from 3.25 to 3.15 liters. After the correct diagnosis of systemic sclerosis was made and scleroderma ILD was confirmed, Perfenidone was stopped and he was started on daily oral cyclophosphamide. And over the next six months, you can see that pulmonary physiology actually improved. So FVC climbed to 73% of the predicted value and DLCO climbed up to 75% of the predicted value. Here are side-by-side -side comparisons of pre-cyclophosphamide uh, images on the left and post-cyclophosphamide images from a similar slice on the right. And you can see there is dramatic improvement in the ground glass and even the reticular opacities. There are areas of traction bronchiectasis and there is definitely significant fibrosis remaining, but you can see 
pretty impressive improvement in the ground glass and reticular opacities throughout the lower zones of the lungs. The question that I would pose to Jesse first, and I'd like Maria to chime in, is how should we think about therapy moving forward in a patient like this? Jesse, do you have thoughts? And there's no right answer to this, so. Sure, um, sure no, I have to agree that <clears throat> there's no right answer. I, I want to emphasize one thing, Jeff, and that is that it took this patient to go to a center that knows about this to get the right answer. And there's good data for IPF, for example, that the longer it takes for you to get to the right place, the higher your mortality because it's not about just the treatment, it's about getting the right diagnosis and preventing things that perhaps are not helpful. So in this case, I started getting worried about the use of cyclophosphamide after a year because of complications and so forth. So in this case, depending on how the PFDs are doing and so forth, I would switch to mycophenolate, and I would add nintenatum because of the data. So I'm tackling the immune response and I'm tackling the fibrotic response. Maria, what do you think? Jesse, that's uh, wonderful. And again, no right answers. But I think that in a patient who is continuing to improve on the immunotherapy, there is a rationale for continuing that before adding things. I think that you wait until the patient stops responding to uh, this and add then an antifibrotic agent when it's obvious that the fibrosis is the predominant um, a manifestation of the disease and the predominant uh, problem that needs to be attacked. So I would not add it immediately, but would wait. So yeah, that's Good. why I mentioned right. the concept of a year. Yeah. Actually, you may t how how is the increase in changes in other complications for cyclophosphamide? Is that very much of an issue after a certain amount of time? So. Um, in the old days, they were using oral cyclophosphamide for a very, very long time, and there was high risk of bladder cancer. Um, nowadays, we do IV cyclophosphamide, at least in my practice, and we do it um, six months. Is like the patient you saw, David, he said chemotherapy. He meant cyclophosphamide. He had such a rapid disease that we did eight months. We followed the uh, urinalysis, no... Um, blood in the urine, and now but then we transition to CELSEP. So I think we cannot do cyclophosphamide indefinitely, because if you do it, bladder cancer will come, and again, that's a big comorbidity. Also, the bone marrow. And the so bone, absolutely. <coughs> bone marrow cancer, um, the other things, if they're in the childbearing age, problem with infertility, so... It's a very heavy-duty medication, but in David's case, case, we did it for eight months instead of six. I do want to make, um, just make sure we're all uh, on the same page. You know, there is no head-to-head -head trial of mycophenolate versus nintedinib, right? So, so it's expert opinion, it's shared decision-making, it's looking at your individual patient and, and the situation that he or she presents in terms of your therapeutic decision-making. But you're not going to find in the literature, mycophenolate versus nintedinib, which one is better? Should they be added or should you use monotherapy? Um, with respect to that, let's say we have a patient with very severe skin disease, okay? And Jesse and Maria decide, this patient also has ILD, they're gonna put them on nintedinib. 
Mirnaz, how, how should we think about the skin disease in a patient like that? So severe skin disease, pretty severe ILD, goes on, is on nintendinib and comes in to see you. So just back to the uh, trial, so 48% of the patient, they were on nintendinib, they were on mycophenolate mofetel as a baseline. So we don't know what is the synergic effect of this medication or one comes first, perhaps decreasing inflammation can help the antifibrotic effect. But we, in, in rheumatoid arthritis, we treat ILD at times separates from joints because Celsap is a good medication, doesn't do much for the joints. We can add rituximab to Celsap, so we have to address the joints. If the joint um, problem is mild, we can do um, hydroxychloroquine. So I would say if Maria and Jesse want to do nintendinib, I may add... Um, Celsaps because that works good for the skin or IVIG or other medications. So a key point there is, you know, th this is input from the rheumatologist. So we as pulmonologists need to lean on the rheumatologist and remind ourselves this is a systemic disease. We need to be looking out for other organ involvement, lean on and, and involve um, our colleagues from, from other subspecialties to help us with, with the management. And as pulmonologists, we sometimes end up being sort of the primary care docs, right? Um, Maria, can you speak to um, how you, when, when a patient comes in who's recently diagnosed and they, let's say you start them on therapy for their ILD, what is the, when is the next visit? When is sort of the first visit after initiating therapy? When should that occur? And what kind of testing would you do in that patient? It's a very good question. And I think that what's important is the monitoring of your patient very closely so that you can look for the potential toxicity of the medication that you have decided to start so that that revisit should happen at a very short interval. And I would say that any place between one and two months after you have initiated therapy will be appropriate. The uh, interval between visits can be then extended, but the frequency of lab monitoring to prevent the toxicity of the disease and to make sure that no other uh, uh, problem has arisen it should be done at uh, periodic intervals. Do not refill a prescription without having had seen your labs and everything else on these patients because uh, these drugs that we are utilizing are indeed uh, potentially toxic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Jesse, maybe time for one more question. So there once was a time when it seemed like no transplant center would think about transplanting a patient with scleroderma-related ILD. Now it seems like some centers are opening up to that option. Do you have thoughts, Jesse, or what would be a trigger for you to potentially send a patient to a transplant center? Well, <clears throat> in contrast to the previous days where we waited until the patient was uh, ready for the transplant, uh, it's nice to send these patients early so they can have a communication with the transplant doc and make a decision whether they, this is the right thing for them or their pre-starting uh, conditions that will prevent them from having a transplant, and that is out of the question at some point. So early communication, early referral, not necessarily for listing, but for communication is important to me. The second point I would make, 
is that if they're suddenly deteriorating and despite your best efforts, and particularly when the DCO is so low that they're starting, you're starting to be concerned for oxygen supplementation, that, that is certainly a key to consider this. The final point I want to make is that one of the biggest concerns about transplanting these patients is esophageal dysmotility because reflux and microaspirations is a big deterrent uh, for lung transplantation and rejection, but big centers who do pay a lot of patients will actually handle that uh, sur uh, surgically as well. Great, thank you, panel. Um, now I'd like to, to summarize. Patients with ultimately diagnosed with scleroderma ILD can present in various ways. Recall, you might have patients who have definitive systemic sclerosis and then develop exertional dyspnea and they're found to have interstitial lung disease. You might have a patient who has known interstitial lung disease who on careful examination or maybe after the development of features over time are found to have systemic sclerosis. And then there are patients who might present with unexplained dyspnea and they are found to indeed have systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease, and those diagnoses are made concomitantly. Because of the challenges in making the diagnosis and in the longitudinal management, interdisciplinary evaluation is key, both in terms of making the correct diagnosis and following patients over time. There are now a handful of therapies that are available to these patients, and so with those choices, come several nuances, and we would urge you to get familiar with the data that the, uh, the trials of these agents showed us, and manage expectations. Specifically, if you're talking about nintetinib, recall, lung function did not improve in patients exposed to nintetinib. Uh, in contrast to cyclophosphamide and mycophenolate, where FVC actually climbed in, uh, in comparison with placebo. So nintetinib slowed disease progression. There are subtle differences in, in the cohorts of those trials, but know the data, be transparent with your patients so that you can together make the best decision about drug therapy. Don't forget other therapeutic maneuvers, including keeping these patients' uh, vaccinations up to date, Look for the need for supplemental oxygen and prescribe it if indicated. And our opinion is that every patient with systemic sclerosis and related interstitial lung disease should enroll in pulmonary rehabilitation. That includes those with combination interstitial lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. The longitudinal evaluation, like the diagnosis, is interdisciplinary. Of course, it's going to vary based on the manifestations and the risks for both interstitial lung disease and pulmonary hypertension. In general, patients with scleroderma-related ILD should be seen quarterly or thereabouts, and that evaluation should include a history, examination, spirometry, diffusing capacity, an assessment of their functional capacity, we use a six-minute walk test, and an assessment of supplemental oxygen needs. And in general, we would say these patients need high-resolution CT scans every 12 to 15 months or so, if not only to look for the extent of lung fibrosis to screen for lung cancer, which we know uh, 
the incidence is elevated in these patients. I thank you very much for attending. This activity was provided by National Jewish Health. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.